Misery by Anton Chekhov. Do you ever feel so lonely and sad that you don't know where to turn? Don't you dream, don't you yearn at moments like those where a single compassionate person would be willing to listen to you? Someone who could listen to you without judging you, without interrupting you, without distracting you with a thousand pointless questions or clarifications, without burdening you with their unrequested advice, however well-intentioned they may be on offering such advice to you. Someone who lends you his or her ears so that you can talk. Because you know that if only you could manage to articulate that anguish that is eating you up, you could get a grip on it, and your mind could clear, and so the pain and the dark cloud hanging over you could begin to heal, to dissipate. Today we read a story by Anton Chekhov that captures this anguished yearning we all sometimes have to speak to someone. The story is entitled Misery, and it takes us back to an old St. Petersburg covered in snow. The Twilight of Evening Big flakes of wet snow are whirling lazily around the street lamps and lying in a thin, soft layer on roofs, horses' backs, shoulders, caps. Yona Potapov, the sledge driver, is all white like a ghost. He sits on the box without staring, bent as double as any living body can be bent. If a massive snowstorm fell on him, he would not care to shake it off. His little mare is white and motionless too. She looks more like a toy than a horse with her stillness, the angularity of her lines, and the stick-like straightness of her legs. She seems lost in thought. Anyone who has been torn away from the plow, from the familiar country landscapes, and cast into this swamp full of harsh lights and ceasing uproar and rushing people, is bound to think sad thoughts. It is a long time since Yona and his horse have moved. They came out of the yard before lunchtime, and not a single fare yet. But now the shades of evening are falling on the town. The pale light of the street lamps changes to vivid color, and the bustle of the street grows noisier. Take me to Vivorskaya, Yona hears. Driver! Yona starts and through his snow-plastered eyelashes sees an officer in a military overcoat with a hood over his head. To Ivorskaya, repeats the officer. Are you asleep? Come on! Yona gives a tug at the reins, which send cakes of snow flying from the horse's back and shoulders. The officer gets into the sledge. Yona clicks to the horse, cranes his neck like a swan, rises in his seat, and more from habit than necessity, rises his whip. The mare cranes her neck to, crooks her stick-like legs, and hesitatingly sets off. What are you shoving, you idiot? shouts another driver coming in the dark from the opposite direction. Where the devil you think you're going? We nearly crashed. 
You don't know how to drive. Keep to the right, says the officer angrily. Another man driving a carriage swears at Yona. A pedestrian crosses the road in front of them and brushes the horse's nose with his shoulder, then looks at Yona angrily and shakes his fist at him. Yona fidgets on the box as though he were sitting on thorns, jerks his elbows, and turns his eyes about like one possessed, as if he didn't know where he was or why he was there. They must be doing their best to run up against you and fall under the horse's feet. It must be a conspiracy, ha, 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 says the officer, mocking him. Yona looks at his passenger and moves his lips. He means to say something, but nothing comes but a sniff. What? inquires the officer. Yona gives a wry smile and, straining his throat, brings out huskily. My son, uh, my son died this week, sir. Hmm. What did he die of? Yona turns his whole body round to the officer and says, Who knows? It must have been a fever. He lay three days in the hospital and then he died. It must have been God's will. Turn round, you idiot! Comes another angry shout out of the darkness. You old fool! Look where you're going! Drive on, drive on, says the officer. We won't get there until tomorrow if you keep going on like this. Hurry up! Yona cranes his neck again, rises in his seat, and with dull grace swings his whip. Several times he looks round at the officer, but the latter keeps his eyes shut and is not inclined to listen. Once he drops him at Bivorskaya, Yona stops by a restaurant and waits huddled up on the box. Once again, the wet snow paints him and his horse white. One hour passes, and then another. Three young men come up, railing at each other and loudly stamping on the pavement with their boots. Driver, take us to the bridge, orders one of them. The three of us, twenty kopecks. Yona tucks at the reins and clicks to his horse. Twenty kopecks is not a fair price but he has no thoughts for that. Whether it is a ruble or whether it is five kopecks does not matter to him now so long as he has a fare. The three young men, shoving each other and using bad language, climb to the sledge, and all three try to sit down at once. But there are only two seats, and after a long altercation, ill temper, and abuse, they decide that it is the shortest of them who should travel standing. Well, drive on says this one, irritated, settling himself and breathing down Yona's neck. <laughs> Have you seen this? What a cap this man is wearing! <laughs> you wouldn't find a worse one in all St. Petersburg! <laughs> Simply ridiculous! Laughs Yona. It's nothing to boast of. Well then... Nothing to boast of. Drive on! Are you going to drive this slowly all the way, eh? Shall I give you one in the neck? <laughs> Grins, Yona. <laughs> Merry gentlemen. Will you get on, you old dog, or won't you? Give that horse one with the whip. Hang it all, give it to her well, cries the short one indignantly. Yona feels the young man breathing and jolting on his back. 
They threaten and abuse him, but at least he's not alone. He sees people, and the feeling of loneliness begins little by little to be less oppressive on his heart. They talk rowdily about drink, money, women. Yona looks round at them. Waiting till there is a brief pause, he looks around once more and says, You know, my son died this week. <laughs> we will all die, interrupts the most aggressive one. Come on, drive on. I cannot stand crawling like this. When will this man get us there? Well, why don't you give him a little encouragement? One in the neck, counsels one of his friends with malice. Did you hear, old man? I'll make you go faster, because at this pace we might as well walk. Did you hear me? And Yona feels a fist landing on the back of his neck. <sighs> he laughs nervously. Very gentlemen, God keep you in good health. Are you married? asks one of the passengers. Married? <laughs> married, gentlemen. The only wife waiting for me now is the grave. Instead of taking me, it took away my son. And Iona turns round to tell them how his son died, but one of them sighs loudly and announces, Ah, oh, thank God we have arrived at last. After taking his twenty kopecks, Iona follows them with his gaze until they disappear into a dark axis. Once again he is alone, and there is only silence for him. The feeling of misery comes back again and tears his heart more cruelly than ever. Yona's eyes stray restlessly among the crowds bustling to and fro on both sides of the street. Could he not find among those thousands someone who will listen to him? But people flit by heedless of his misery. His sadness is immense, beyond all bounds. If Yona's heart were to burst, and his grief to flow out, it would flood the whole world, it seems. Jonas is a porter with a parcel and makes out his mind to address him. What time is it, my friend? he asks. Going on for ten. Why have you stopped here? You're blocking the way. Drive on. Yona drives a few paces away, bends himself double, and gives himself up to his misery. It's no use to appeal to people. After long minutes of hesitation, he draws himself up, shakes his head as though he feels a sharp pain, and tugs at the reins. He can bear it no longer. Better go back to the yard, he thinks. It's no use standing here. And his little mare, as though she knew his thoughts, starts trotting back. An hour and a half later, Yona is sitting by a big, dirty stove. Next to the stove, on the floor and rickety benches everywhere, others' late drivers are snoring. The air is full of acrid smells and stuffiness. Yona looks at the sleeping figures and regrets that he has come back home so early. In another corner, a young man gets up, clears his throat sleepily, 
and makes for the water bucket. Want a drink? Yona asks him. I uh, uh. Here you go. My son is dead, did you know? He died this week in the hospital. After three days of... Yona looks to see the effect produced by his words, but he sees that the young man has covered his head again and is already asleep. Yona sighs and shuts his eyes. His son will soon have been dead a week, and he has not talked to anybody yet. He's desperate to tell how his son was taken ill, how he suffered, what he said before he died, how he died. He wants to describe the funeral and how he went to the hospital to get his son's clothes. His son left a little girl, his daughter Anisia, in the village, and he wants to talk about her too. Yes, he has so much to talk about with someone, anyone who'd care to listen, someone who could sigh and cry with him. It would be even better to talk to one of the women from his village. They always weep at the first word. Yona decides to go out and check on his horse. He puts his coat back on and goes into the stables where his mare is standing. What are we going to do, old girl? Yona asks her, seeing her shining eyes. He pats her gently on the neck. We couldn't earn enough for oats. We will eat hay. I'm too old to drive now. My son would have replaced me. But he went and died. Yuna is silent for a while and then continues. That's how it is, old girl. My son is gone. Died for no reason. You do understand, don't you? Suppose you had a little cult and you were the mother of that little cult and all at once that little cult went and died. You'd be really sad, wouldn't you? The little mare keeps munching, listens to her master, and breathes on his hands. Now that a living creature is finally listening to him, Yona gets carried away and unburdens his heart by telling her all he longs to say. Many times in life, the best gift we can receive is for someone to grant us the mercy of listening to us attentively, with compassion, with empathy, without interrupting us every few words, so that we can express everything that's troubling us and thus clear mind and heart. Has it happened to you yet? What you crave in such a moment is not a superficial everyday chat. What you need is the opportunity to let out the cloud of anguish and pain that is gnawing at your guts, so that you can leave it behind, so that you can reveal and finally put a name or a face to your affliction. Unless we manage to name that amorphous dread that sometimes drowns us, we fail to cut it to measure, and it remains a thick, impenetrable mist that envelops everything and seems to choke us. 
But when we bravely decide to confront and speak of it, without distractions or interruptions, it's as if we discover it and mask it for the first time until we can name it and then begin to heal. When we listen attentively to someone, we truly help them heal. We do not give them advice or formulas, do this, do that. No, no, no. We simply listen with compassion and empathy to the other person, your husband, your wife, your parents, your children. We offer them the sacred space to find, by themselves, the light at the end of their own tunnel. And hopefully they will offer us that same space when we need it. Because no one ever really listens to us. Many languish and often perish alone, even when surrounded by people. Some of us seek refuge in writing. We unburden ourselves on the page. We make a habit of writing, not because writing is easy or comes naturally to us, but because putting words on the page, unearthing ideas on the page, helps us to heal little by little. When there's no one to listen to us, the page will listen to us. And same thing with God. Put your prayers or grievances in writing. Talk or fight it out with Him in writing. He's a big man. He won't be scared by anything you say or do. Don't get fancy. Keep it simple. You're not writing a novel or your memoirs yet. Only a diary or a simple notepad is needed. There you can express yourself at your ease, for the pages will listen to you, and in them you might see your face for the first time. You will find clarity by putting things in writing. Write without fear or frolics, because this is for your eyes only. Make sure not to leave your diary within anyone's reach, for it is your intimacy. And on occasion, it will be your vomit not anyone else's to witness or encounter. It is for your eyes only. And if I may recommend a great book about it, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron has saved my life more than once. That's The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Let's give our loved ones, our friends, our colleagues, the sacred space to talk without our interruptions. Let their ideas and anxieties flow freely until they turn like a butterfly into clarity and wisdom, and we all get to lighten our load and live a happier life. Thank you for listening. Visit radiantwhispers.com for more stories like this. <laughs>